Welcome to For the Love of Dogs with Janice Wolf. Hey there, it is Friday. You know that because you're listening to me right now. And I have the coolest reason why I couldn't do the show last week. It's because I'm sitting in a box of puppies right now. So there's a very good chance you're going to hear little puppies dreaming and little puppies snoring and little puppies yelping and in their sleep or the mama dog who's laying on my feet. And uh, it's a great day. My dog's uh, kicked ass in the, in the show ring, and my puppies are doing great. And uh, I'm here to help you guys with your dogs. And today I'm going to actually talk about a new one of my patients um, who I saw just before the puppies were born. And uh, this is a really common issue that a lot of dogs have, not maybe to this degree, although for me this isn't a biggie, but for many of you, you may be dealing with the same kind of a situation. And this is one of those email, actually phone calls, um, that somebody literally, I hung up the phone 10 minutes ago um, with a follow-up. And it's a, uh, a doodle. Um, I know you're not surprised. It's uh, what they call Australian uh, Labradoodle. It's uh, a little different situation than the typical mixed breed, you know, designer dog, whatever we call them now. Um, and this dog is these the ones that they call Australian. There is a difference. Um, those are people who are actually trying to create a new breed. And actually in 1989, a gentleman in Australia who trained seeing eye dogs, guide dogs for the blind, had a uh, client who um, was uh, blind, and I believe it was the wife, had severe allergies to dogs. So he thought, well, um, I use labs, but the wife is allergic to the lab. So I'm going to see if I can mix poodle into it and see if I can make something of it. Well, he rused the day that he started it because we know where it's kind of uh, created into every kind of combination of, uh, you know, Sharpay, Cocker, Spaniel, and weird combinations of things that probably nature would never have done. But the um, quote-unquote Australian uh, ones are people who, there are some actually very good people who are trying to create an actual breed. Now, is it going to happen in the next 10 years? No. 20 years? No. Maybe in 100 years? Yeah, maybe. Maybe even in 50. But a breed exists because there's a purpose. So you have to always look at when you have a breed, uh, for instance, myself, my Rhodesian Ridgebacks, they're bred to bay, not hunt and kill. Some people are so dumb. They're, a 90-pound Ridgeback isn't going to kill a 400-pound lion. I'm sorry. It's just that's not going to happen. They're not bred to kill lions, but they're bred to bay lions, to chase lions, and to hold them at bay, much like a beagle or, or the Senji would do, holding an animal at bay until the hunter can come. And the hunter is the one who kills the animal, not the dog. So let's just talk about this for a moment. So these are some qualities that would be super helpful for a Rhodesian Ridgeback if you were going to breed one, that they came from the boars and the Hottentots, and there's four breeds in them, um, Mastiff, Greyhound, Bloodhound, and Great Dane. So you would pick each of these breeds to, to combine, and then those actually interbred with the African wild dog quite by accident, um, and they noticed that the... Ridgebacks, as they became called, the ones that had the ridge were smarter, faster, better quality, had better temperaments, and were had better longevity. So they started selectively breeding for the ridge. So that's why Ridgebacks have a ridge. There was actually a purpose to the ridge. It was that they felt that the ones with the ridge had better temperaments. And actually, a lot of times, I'll tell you that's true. I haven't had, uh, you know, really the ridgeless ridgebacks, but there are some, and even the different colors, there's uh, one that's a uh, kind of a reddish, it looks more like a vishla, uh, ridgeless, uh, ridgeless little ridgeback is called a vishla. I'm just kidding, totally different groups, boarding group versus hound. But the ridgeback, so if you were going to hunt a lion and you were going to chase a lion, you don't want a fearful dog because it's not going to do that. But you don't want a dog who's going to be too much like going after it, right? Like uh, we say, like some of the super dominant dogs, I'm not going to mention breeds, but there's some breeds we know will go after, kind of the Mike Tysons of the dog world, will go after anything they don't care. 
So that kind of dog who's too dominant, who's too over the top, that's not a good choice either because that lion's going to eat that dog or kill it, certainly. So we don't want a fearful dog, for sure. We don't want a dominant dog. We need something in between. We need a dog who's smart, a dog who can look, who can see things. So they're sight hounds. They look. They can find their prey. They they have amazing eyesight. Um, They can look to see where that line is. They can... They can bait the lion, so to speak. They might give it a poke or a bark, and then they back away, and then they go toward and back away, and they hunt in packs. So that's what we would need for a lion, to to bay a lion. Well, the other part of that is, because it was a dangerous area, the other dogs, like females, or the males might go out to hunt, and the females, although it's usually backward, um, might stay at home, and they would protect the women and children who were in the home from attack by wild animals or dangerous people who might be there trying to harm them. So these dogs really have a huge background of confidence but being smart. The reason that the Ridgebacks typically don't make it onto the 10 smartest dog list is because the people testing for those 10 smartest dogs are not smarter than a Ridgeback. I'm telling you, these dogs are smart. I have one who is not so bright. And every other one would be valedictorians at Columbia, which is my alma mater, or Princeton or Yale or Harvard. They are brilliant dogs. They just don't believe that you are going to be as smart as they are. So a lot of times, if you're not a very confident uh, leader and and parent, they might do uh, more than you want them to do. But if if you have about two two quarters worth of of, uh, intelligence and sense, They're wonderful. Not for everybody. Every dog is not for everybody. But let's go back to the qualities. We need a dog who's confident without being dominant, certainly not fearful. Okay, so we breed that temperament. We need a dog who is fleet of foot, who is capable of great speed or moderate speed for great distances. So you wouldn't have a dog that would be running like a greyhound that's going to be doing it in a spurt. You would have a dog who's able to trot very long time for a great distance to track and find that lion where the lion was, right? Lions roam all over the place. It's not like a greyhound that's going to be racing and going around a track in less than a minute, and it needs a burst of speed. So you need to have a dog who's got a really good, solid, long, relaxed, free-moving trot. You need a dog with short hair, right? Because they're in Africa. It's hot down there. So you also need a dog, interestingly enough, with webbed feet. People who have a ridgeback will say, why do I, why does my dog have webbed feet? He hates swimming. Well, again, there's not a whole lot of water down there, not a whole lot of rivers and lakes. I mean, certain areas, yes. But in South Africa, you know, it's it's like a tundra, right? There's sand, there's tundra. So the webbed feet are to help the, the dogs get through this sandy, loose type of dirt that they have. That's why they have webbed feet. They have strong, very, very thick toenails to help them dig in. It helps them move. They have a straight, long, beautiful back, and they have a very elongated gait. They have long necks because they need a long trachea in order for them to cool themselves, right, because they're going to be trotting for a long distance. A dog with a short neck or a horse, you think of of an animal with a long neck like a giraffe or a horse, Um, they're better able to not only heat themselves but cool themselves. So the air coming in can be heated or cooled before it gets into their lungs, which then helps them. So think about all the qualities that, let's say, I'm just saying with a Ridgeback. They have a scissor bite so that if they do need to grab something, they can hold on. But they don't have a lock. They don't, their jaws don't lock because you don't want to get locked onto the tail end or the side of a lion so that you can then not let go and it kills you. So that's what you breed, let's say, the Rhodesian Ridgeback. That's what you breed them for. Let's take another one, a Newfoundland. Newfoundland, um, a lab. Okay, these are dogs that are basically used to retrieve things from water or rescue people out of water. So they like water. Okay, Ridgebacks hate water. Don't throw a Ridgeback in the bathtub. You're going to play the death march. They will just look at you like, I can't believe you're doing that. You hate me. 
Whereas a new fear, a lab or a golden, is going to go like, party, there's a pool. So every breed, every breed, and I say that specifically, every breed there is, was bred for a specific purpose. Now, please tell me what a cockapoo was bred to do. What job? Because cockers had jobs, poodles had jobs. What is a cockapoo bred to do? Yeah. What is a uh, golden doodle bred to do? Yeah. What is an Australian labradoodle bred to do? Well, people are trying to come up with something that this dog will have. And that the problem is with mixing breeds, it's not bad. It's just that people typically will think, Okay, well, you know, mixed breed dogs are healthier, so they'll get a golden mixed with a poodle. Well, both of those dogs have juvenile cataracts, and goldens can have seizures as well. So then you wind up with a dog who gets the uh, juvenile cataract gene, the chromosome from the from the father and from the mother, even though they're different breeds, they still have juvenile cataracts, and then they have megasophagus and everything else. So... The purpose of creating a breed through hundreds of years, typically, is to create something for a purpose. So I have respect for the people who are trying to breed a specific breed. But the problem is, when you're doing that, you can't go too close. You can't breed a doodle to a doodle, because if you do that, um, you are going to end up having the... um, the genetics coming back to bite you quite literally. The the key here is when you have a breed, that breed has a purpose. The breed is bred to do something. Look at Basenjis. Do you know why Basenjis don't howl and don't bark? Because the uh, people on horseback, the hunters would take these Basenjis. They had to be small enough to fit in the side packs of, or the backpacks of the, on the horses. Um, and they would ride out to the area they thought that they were going to have to do the hunting. They would put these little dogs down, these Basenjis, and they wouldn't bark. They have almost like they yodel, so it doesn't sound like a dog, so they could sneak up on their prey. It's very, very interesting to see what each breed was bred to do and what, how the, the qualities that they were able to breed these animals to do over hundreds of years were were concocted, basically, and It all started with what is the purpose. So if there is no purpose to the breed or if you are breeding, cross-breeding, mixed-breeding, whatever, they it's not a hybrid because a hybrid is a zebra and a horse or a a donkey and a horse is a mule. Um, But what we have to look at is what is the purpose. If you cannot tell me what the purpose of that mix is, then that's why there's no continuity. That's why it isn't a thing. Not that the individual dog can't be wonderful and healthy if somebody does it right, but that's also the reason there's not a lot of consistency within these mixes. Um, And even within newer breeds that are legitimate breeds, it takes hundreds of years of committed breeders, committed hobby breeders who love the, the fancy, as we call it, and they just want to be able to have this, you know, this perfect animal. Um, and that's why we have to do what we do is in order to make sure that we have the, the right animal, the best animal, and the healthiest animal. If we don't have, you know, the healthiest animal um, and we have a problem with them, then that's not really doing the right thing at all. That's, to me, doing a great disservice to um, to the dogs is why do we want to breed something that's, not going to be healthy or or able to do the the job for which it was being bred for. So that brings me to the Australian Labradoodle. Okay. Um, what are they bred to do? And the answer is, we don't know. They're not bred to do anything, and this is the problem. They need the the group of people who I have respect for because they're trying to do something right. Um, but this group of people has to come up with what the purpose of this dog is going to be, not as far as looking at it and saying, 
you know, oh, well, we just want it to be a therapy dog. That's, that's not a purpose. That's a job, but it's not a purpose. So are we breeding this dog to be a hunter? Because if we're breeding it to be a hunter, then obviously we need a confident dog with a good nose. And it also means that the dog is going to be able to track. So the dog is going to be focused, not be panting all the time, and it will be able to track its prey. Well, okay, we're not doing that. So let's say, are we going to breed it to be a racing animal, like a greyhound or a whippet? Well, no. So, okay, so how does the animal move? Does it walk? Does it trot? Does it gallop or canter? Well, we don't know because we don't have an idea of what we really want to do with this dog. So, again, you can see where we start having issues because we don't have a purpose that we want the animal to do. And when we don't have that purpose, that's why we're having all these issues with all these mixed-breed dogs that are being bred by people who just really want to make money. They don't really care about much of anything other than if they can make enough money. So that's another thing is the people who are breeding many of these dogs, and and I'm uh, removing the uh, Australian Labradoodle people from this because they are trying to make it into something that will have consistency and continuity. Um, But again, the main issue here is having the purpose. So if we take dogs and we just randomly go, oh, look, it's fluffy, it's furry. I'm telling you, my, I'm a behaviorist, as you know. I am telling you that I, I, I can't even tell you. It's got to be at least 50% of my business is the poodle mixes and these designer, well, designer dogs um, that people are spending, you know, oftentimes two or three times what a well-bred, purebred dog would cost. They're doing this, though, for a different reason. They're doing this because they are trying in whatever way, shape, or form they can to make money. The people, though, who are breeding a specific breed, trying to create something, if you ask those people, what are you trying to breed? What qualities are you trying to breed? They'll say, well, we want it to have a good temperament. Okay. We want it to be 35 to 40 pounds. Okay. And what is its job? Well, it doesn't have a job. Okay. So that's where we're getting people. Let me explain how this works. They breed, let's say, a lab to a poodle. And then they breed another lab to a poodle. So that's F1. And then the babies are F2. So now we have two F1. Um, F1Bs, um, and it it doesn't exist. There is no F1B. But we have two F1Bs, and then we bring that poodle back in. Now, the more poodle you bring in, for whatever reason, the more issues people tend to be having. So these Australian Labradoodle breeders, good idea. They said, you know, let's not – we know that once you get past the F2, which we call an F1B even though it's an F2, once you get past that – Good things are not happening. We're having a lot of health issues, megasophagus. We're having a lot of temperament issues. We're having all these things. Let's introduce other breeds into what we're going to call this Australian Labradoodle. So it was smart. It was very, very smart. But what happened is they allow that breed in. So now if you have, let's say, one that's you know been bred 20 years, so it's got, let's say, 10 generations in it, like, scary as it it sounds for 20 years, but let's say it's got, you know, 20 generations in it um, or 10 generations. You're still not at a point where they look like each other. So you, when you're bringing something in, you might have one that's 50% poodle, 50% lab, and now you're breeding that baby who's a 50-50 cross, and you're breeding that to, let's say, a setter or a spaniel. So now it's 50% Spaniel, and it's 25% Lab and 25% Poodle, but it's still called an Australian Labradoodle. Or you can have one that's 33% this and 20% that and 16% this. And, you know, DNA your dogs. I mean, all of you guys that have these dogs, and you, you'll see it, it, it just takes years to do I have a lot of respect for the people who are trying to make this into a breed. All I'm going to say is I see all of the, the, the dogs that you breed that are your failures 
And I think you need to take responsibility because this is what gets me into what I'm going to talk about today for the next 10 minutes or so. This very lovely family, and, and they are not the only family that I have had these long conversations with. The family is wonderful. They are super, super, super committed to the dog. They truly, truly, truly love this animal. But the dog has such severe separation anxiety. It has such, unfortunately, significant um, issues with its um, temperament, its behavior. Um, the dog is terrified um, to be alone. It has, you know, not only separation anxiety, but it also has um, anxiety in general. It has what we call generalized anxiety disorder, GAD. So it has all this anxiety anyway, and now it's just manifesting itself as separation anxiety. But think about an animal who has separation anxiety will almost always have other manifestations of anxiety. So if you're telling me, okay, well, I have a, I have the best dog in the world. My dog is a, you know, blah, 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 blah doodle, and it's the best dog in the world. I'm glad. That's great. Great, let's work for me. But the problem is that most of these dogs have anxiety because their genetics are creating that. And people aren't breeding them with the intention of having a specific purpose. Again, if you said to me, okay, we're going to breed these dogs, they're going to be uh, used for tracking, they're going to be used for therapy, and they're going to be used for, oh, I don't know, service dogs, not that we can get one to pass our service dog uh, test, but let's say those three things. So we would say, okay, well, for this particular thing, we need these qualities. For this particular thing, we need those qualities. And then we can start looking at it as a thing. It becomes a thing because then we have uh, the way of, you know, looking at how everything is in... Um, you know, in a in a perfect world, right? We would have the perfect dog. But what happened with this family is they went to a quote-unquote breeder. Uh, and remembering, a breeder breeds to better the breed, not to make mixes. So the doodle, the Australian people, I think, you know, are, are doing a good job. Uh, they're not in Australia. There might be some there too, but they're in America or all over. Um, they have to come up with a purpose because the dogs that I see that are any of these poodle mixes, 50% of them have significant issues. That's way too high. That's like you saying, oh, you're going to have children and you're going to have four children and two of them are going to have significant disabilities. There, you, you probably should think things over before you, you do something, right? Because you should not have that level of, um, of concern and of failure, if you would, although I love special needs kids, so to me that's a success. But if you're buying a, um, you know, uh, a, a dog who you just want, um, you know, good things to happen and you just want to have a nice puppy and, you know, have a great dog for your kids, you, you're not looking at listening to me for a half hour talking about doodles. You just wanted a good dog. And that's where the problem is because this particular man who bred and created my client's dog, this Australian one, um, this dog um, is, uh, you know, is basically um, a living, walking, breathing anxiety. You know, it's just, it's a, it's a super anxious dog. So the manifestation of it is the anxiety is happening, um, you know, during this whole time. And unfortunately, um, you know, this is what's going on. So let's talk about that for a moment. How do you fix, let's say, a doodle with anxiety? Well, huh, how much time do we have? Sometimes you do need medication, and I'm not a big proponent of medication, but sometimes you do because sometimes there are chemical issues within a dog uh, or a person who just cannot regulate, and especially when we're dealing with mixing genes, mixing genetics of different things, 
It's like if you have your husband is six foot six and you're five feet tall, he has uh, brown eyes, you have beautiful blue eyes, and you say, I want my child to have my eyes and my husband's height. You're probably going to get the short brown-eyed kid. Or you could have a medium-sized kid with hazel eyes. Or you could have a tall one with brown eyes. Or you can have a short one with brown eyes or blue eyes. It's it's very, very, um, you know, fun to, to try to figure it out in a Punnett square, which is um, genetics. But honestly, I deal with wonderful people who have a dog who they really need um, to, to just have this wonderful dog. I'm sitting in a box with, you know, with puppies, right? And these puppies have already in, in a week gotten more work than the average, you know, puppy mill or backyard breeder would put into 20 years of puppies. I do everything beforehand and I, I am very focused on that. Everything that is being done is from the moment they're, they're even considered to be conceived, uh, before I even think of breeding one of them, I assess my temperaments, I assess my health, the longevity, the siblings, the cousins, the other relatives, how did previous crosses come out to different lines of, of Ridgebacks. But that's something that you do as a great breeder. You make sure that what you are breeding is going to be not only looking cute, or looking pretty, but that it's going to live a really long time. It's going to have good health while it's living a long time. It's not going to have major health issues. It's not going to have genetic or conformational issues. It's not going to have temperament and behavioral issues. So you really have to think about that. So when you have a dog who has anxiety, basically from, as she described, from the moment she got the dog, I don't care who you are. You can't fix that 100%. Because it's a problem. It's like someone who's bipolar. If someone is bipolar or someone has extreme, like a generalized anxiety disorder, they're just anxious. It's just an anxious, nervous person. You can use medications or you can use breathing, deep breathing. You can use other techniques for self-regulation. There are a lot of things you can do, but you're still underneath it all an anxious person or a nervous person or um, generalized anxiety or whatever you have. It's there. So for me to fix that, I'd have to fix the genetics, but I can't fix the genetics of something that's already born. I don't have to worry about my, that myself, but when you're buying a dog, you need to really sit down with people, meet the dogs, ask them questions, say, what happens? Do you give a guarantee? I know you're giving me a contract that lasts, you know, six-month guarantee. Wow, that's great. Well, it, they, they'll tell you, oh, yes, we're going to guarantee for a year the health, um, but it's, it's against congenital things or things that it, that it would maybe ma- not manifest till the animal is two or three years old, like if it has a thyroid condition. If the dog has, like, hypothyroidism, they go, oh, that's not deadly. Yeah, but it's going to cost you a ton of money, and you're not going to be able to do things with the dog or, or a lot of things. I see tons of these mixes having Addison's disease. They shouldn't have Addison. You can you can test for most of that, but again, it's what are the people who are breeding it looking to do? Are they trying to make a new breed? Are they trying to improve on individuals within a breed, like I'm doing, or are they trying to just make money? And you're never going to know that. But I would tell everybody here, and by the time your dog gets to me to to have help. You've probably gone through thousands of dollars in obedience trainers, your local vet, your local behavioral vet with medication, probably getting Prozac or whatever you're getting from from your behavioral vet, Um, and then nobody can fix it. And then eventually they come to me, and I can't fix something that's a genetic issue, but what I can do is fix the reason that it's manifesting itself, and that's what we're talking about. So let's just say for a moment you have this Australian Labradoodle and the dog is four years old. He's extremely anxious and has horrible separation anxiety. Yes, you could keep him on trazodone as he was prescribed by his vet, but then you have a dumbed down version and I'm pretty sure you don't want your dog sleeping all the time. You want to interact with them because that's why you got a dog. 
and you thought you were getting a good dog from a good breeder, but, well, things don't always happen that way. So the key for me is to find that moment where that behavior began. So obviously if the dog was born with something, it's born with something, but where did the manifestation of that begin? What incident happened? Ah, you were using a shot collar or you were using the the invisible fence um, type things, the hidden fencing that goes underground and that delivers either a, a sound or a shock. A lot of times those Shock collars and prong collars and choker chains and things like that will cause a dog to become more anxious because it doesn't understand as a dog where that sound is coming from, where that shock is coming from. At least with a shock collar or uh, or a um, invisible fence type thing, um, usually you know you can you can stop it. But how about if you have a situation where the dog can't be stopped because you've already cause damage. Let's say a dog is uh, on a flexi lead, one of those extendable leads with a prong collar or with a uh, choker chain, and the dog gets to the end of that collar and the dog hurts itself. It may wind up being reactive to anything around its neck, including if you go to touch it around its neck, you go to pet it around its neck, you go to stroke it around its neck, you go to put the collar on around its neck or take the collar off around its neck or, or the dog runs outside and some well-meaning bystander grabs the dog from running away and the dog attacks him or runs from him or slips the collar. That's what I'm saying. There are so many things that cause these issues that you really need to start at the beginning and try to figure out what was the cause and what was it that in that moment created the panic or created the situation whereby this dog um, started having issues. And that is really, I think, one of the most interesting parts of behavior is, you know, looking at what things are that cause other situations. So, unfortunately, this section of the show, the segment is going to be over right now and we're going to have to take a quick break and come back with from shelter dog to service dog so you stay tuned right now because you don't want to miss it hello 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 i am back um so we're going to talk about how uh, and kind of tying into the first half of the show how different breeds uh, are good, bad, or indifferent to uh, the skills and tasks they're doing. And I want to go over, because a lot of people have been in the last month, and I, I've probably had a couple dozen people uh, asking me, what's the difference between a service dog, a therapy dog, and an emotional support dog? And what kind of temperaments are required for each? So I'm going to tell you this. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough words to be able to explain each of the, you know, goods, bads, and indifference um, for each of these things. So I'm going to do is basically go through and let everybody kind of understand um, what it is that we basically are looking for here. So the first thing we're looking for is to start with is if you're looking for a dog who's going to be used for one individual, meaning a service dog or an emotional support dog, if we have a legitimate emotional support dog, let's say it that way, those are going to be dogs that we want to be more focused on one person, right? If we have an emotional support dog, like a real one, which is almost to the point of potentially becoming a service dog, we want that dog to focus on you or whoever it is it needs to focus on. A service dog, and let's leave emotional support dogs out now, but let's talk about service dogs. And a service dog, we don't want a service dog to have such a happy temperament that it's happy to see anybody. We need that dog to focus on the child or adult who needs that dog. So as soon as we have a dog who's happy, happy, joy, joy with everybody and is equally happy um, having you or having uh, somebody else, well, 
that's kind of a problem because then that dog is telling us that he's not able to um, to do that whole job. And it's important for him or for her to focus only on you. So what's a great breed for, or a combination of breeds to be a service dog? Well, I love my Ridgebacks. I think they're phenomenal. Um, they're great for mobility. They're very big, powerful, solid, um, and they're confident, not dominant. They're not fearful, so they're confident, so that gives them a lot of good qualities there. Um, they have short hair. They don't shed a lot. Those are definitely some good things. They are comfortable being pretty much anywhere with anybody, um, and they would be protective if they needed to, but they might not need to. Um, so you can see there are a lot of good things for that. And they're also very much one person or one family dogs. So if we had, um, sorry, I'm just laughing because I've got a, a six-day-old puppy who is rolling over back and forth, and it's the cutest thing in the whole world. Uh, did tell you I was in a box of puppies? I really am. Um, so let's say a Rhodesian Ridgeback. You go into a new place. You're going into an airport, uh, airline hangar. Uh, you're on a busy, crowded bus, subway, train. Um, you're on a plane. You're hitting turbulence. These dogs are going to be typically going to be very solid. They're not going to be afraid. They're not going to be trying to run out the door. They're going to do that job because they love their people. They want to be with their people. And they're not fickle. They're going to want to stay with their humans. So those are obviously really great qualities for a service dog. Now, let's talk about another kind of dog, then. This is for one specific type. How about a dog that is going to be very alert and is going to constantly be on duty and maybe keeping, let's say, a child from running out the door? Well, there you go. How about a Border Collie, an Aussie? Dogs that like to give a little nip, dogs who herd, naturally herd, H-E-R-D, because then the qualities are in that dog. Now, does that mean that the dog is going to be perfect? No, it means that you're going to be uh, fixing bruises on your toddler who's running around, but you know that the dog is most likely not going to try to attack the child, and they're going to be much more focused on movement. So if you have someone who's running around a lot and you want the dog to keep that person from running around, um, a Border Collie or an Aussie could be a great choice or a Sheltie, although they're a little little bit uh, flighty, but you could definitely have a herding breed. Where would that not be good to have a herding breed? Let's say a working slash herding breed such as a German Shepherd. Well, that dog might be great in one regard, but it might be a big problem in another because it's got too much protectiveness. So if somebody, let's say, tries to pick up that toddler who's trying to run away, that shepherd may just take a chunk out of that person, and rightfully so. It's, it's a shepherd. So you have to really look at the qualities, whether it's purebred or mixed-breed dog. You have to look at the qualities that you need. You have to not say what breed you want. You have to say, I want my dog to do this and this. I don't want my dog to do this and that. And I'm going to be using the dog for this purpose. I'm going to be using this dog for that purpose. And as soon as we are able to look at this and say, this is what I need, then as soon as we can do that, we can find the perfect dog. Now, I'm going to also urge you, even though I love my breed and I love many, many purebred dogs, I am going to tell you something. Sometimes you can get the perfect dog out of a shelter or rescue, about one in a hundred dogs at a shelter, and it's not more than that, it's less than that. But about one in a hundred of those dogs, if you know what you're looking for, and if you get a really good trainer who's been doing this 20 years or so, not just your local yoga person, you know, but somebody who really knows dogs, you can tell that person what you're looking for. Or you could even call us at 800, I'm sorry, at 855-449-9288. You can also email us, um, and we will help you. To, to find a good quality, different qualities in the dog. But I love finding rescue dogs. And even though I love my Ridgebacks and two of them won winner's dog, winner's bitch, best of winners, and best of opposite, and a whole bunch of stuff today, even though 
they're winning and they're wonderful dogs in the show ring, and that's my breed, I get more non-Ridgebacks than Ridgebacks as service dogs. I will have a lot of times, like we have mixes of hound mixed with maybe border collie mixed with a pointer or whatever. And what I love so much about getting a rescue is, first of all, they're not expensive. Second of all, you could pick short hair, long hair, big, small, color difference, quality, temperament. And if you go to your local animal shelter and you tell them, and don't be rushing, wait until they get that right dog. The problem is you don't know why they wound up in a shelter, and that's where people, you know, have me come in or any of my staff come in and say, can you tell me or can you keep the dog for a couple of months? Because you really don't know why the dog ended up in the shelter or the rescue. But typically, out of 100 dogs you might see at a rescue or a shelter, there's one dog there, might be even two if it's a good rescue, that can be wonderful dogs and have all the qualities you need. But you need to know what qualities you need. Don't call somebody and say, and this happens, my God, how many times a week does this happen? Dozens. People call me and say, Janice, I know you know what kind of dogs would be great service dogs. Like, I want to rescue a dog. Can you tell me what I should look for? And you know all of you people, because some of you are listening to the show right now, either live or on podcast. I know you're doing it. And they say, what quality should I look for? And they say, well, I don't know you. I don't know what you need. I don't know your lifestyle. I don't know if you have a family or kids. I don't know if you live in the boondocks or if you live in the city. you got to tell me, what do you need the dog for? Because the dog that I find that would be the perfect service dog for a little autistic six-year-old boy in New Jersey who lives in an apartment is a totally different dog from what you need in California in, you know, for mobility and for seizures. They're not the same dog. So stop looking for the perfect service dog. Look for the dog that's going to fit your lifestyle and has the qualities that you need. And that gets back to breeding. Whether you're having somebody breeding a dog um, or you're having someone breeding perfection in a dog like I do and like our hobby breeders do and our kennel club members do, um, which AKC stands for, um, we have the option of looking far and wide to find that perfect dog. And if you can go to that shelter or work with a rescue and say, listen, this is what I'm looking for, okay? And mo- like I said, a lot of rescues and a lot of shelters, well, let's say a lot of shelters and a, some of the rescues will actually be great. There's one um, which is a phenomenal rescue called Incredible Pups with a young lady named Dana who's going to be on the show in a couple of weeks, maybe even next week if I can get her on. Um, I can call her and I can say, Dana, I'm looking for this. And I will tell her the qualities I want in a dog. And like I told her, I want a dog who's a, a larger size, who's got a little bit stocky, who is tall, short-haired, good temperament, gentle, confident, not overly confident, not fearful, and a dog who has a good uh, desire to please, you got anything. And I asked her that a year ago. She just got me the most amazing female Great Dane pup, cutest thing, cute as a button. And I have no doubt that that dog is going to wind up being great because I waited for that perfect dog for one of my particular clients, one of the people, one of the kids. And I knew what this child was going to need, and we found it. But it took me almost a year. So it may take you time. Don't go to the shelter and say, I'm going to find my perfect dog today. That's like going to a bar and saying, I'm going to find my future spouse right there in the bar tonight. And he's got to be drinking green beer. And if he's not drinking green beer, I think he's not the right guy. So, yes, that's exactly what it's like. So, It's great to rescue. My God, I love when people rescue, 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 rescue away. But what I don't want you to do, please, is just get desperate and go buy something and feel sorry for it because you're buying it from somebody in Pennsylvania or in, you know, Missouri um, who's breeding, you know, 16 different combinations of of 18 different dogs 
you need to know what you're looking for and the temperament and the qualities. And when you find a great breeder and you find someone who says, you know, I have a litter right now, but I really don't think any of them are going to be good. Can you wait till the next litter next year? If you have to, then wait or have a couple of breeders and make sure you trust them. Make sure you know that they're doing all their health checks and their temperament checks. Make sure that they're doing a lot of work before you even get the dog, which is the most important thing. And also, make sure that when you get this dog that they are going to stand behind it, that you're not going to wind up having a dog with behavioral issues or, or a dog who's a freak and now you're stuck with this dog. The problem with getting um, a dog and training it yourself to be a service dog, though, honestly, is the fact that you don't know what you don't know. You, I don't care if you're a, a dog trainer for 20 years. You don't know how to train a service dog. You don't. You don't know what you're looking for. You don't know what you're doing. You think you do, and that's the problem. But to train a service dog, you're going to have at least 50 throwaways. You're going to have you're going to have different breeds. You're going to say, I'm going to train this one. Oh, this one was too dominant. Oops, screwed up on that. Or, oh, this one became fearful. Or, oop, got this, you know, cockapoo, and it, it bit three of the staff. Okay, let's still put it out there as a service dog because, you know, we put money into it. We need to get our money out. I mean, that's what you see with a lot of these even service dog companies uh, because they just popped up. And, I mean, I can't even believe how many service dog agencies or places there are. And, and typically, within two to five years, they're out of business taking your money with them. So you really need to find somebody who knows what they're doing, somebody you trust. And like, like Merlin's kids, okay, we, we've been doing this since 1985. Or, I mean, 1985, we're in 2022. I mean, look at that. That's like 40, almost what, 35 to 37 years. That's a long time. So if we're looking at that, have we had dogs early on that we didn't think panned out? Yeah, and every so often we'll get one that, you know, especially we, we, got, we get these doodle mixes. And a lot of times they're great when they're young. They go through a wicked fear phase. And then, you know, we, we have to use them for very minimal things. They're not good for mobility because they don't have good stocky bodies like a Ridgeback or a Dane or a Mastiff would have. So we wind up having to repurpose them. So we'll use them as a facility dog for children, or sometimes we'll swap them over if they're, if they're too happy and too friendly with everybody, they'll become a therapy dog. So service dog focuses on one individual. A therapy dog is a dog that you have that it's just happy to be alive. It's happy to be petted by anybody. Um, typically you'll have to have a good bond with that kind of a dog too, because you're going to be the one bringing the dog in and giving it the commands or, you know, telling it what to do or telling people how to handle it or hold it or whatever. So it's, it is great. And it's a, it's a fun thing for sure to, um, to give of your time and donate your time. Um, we have a wonderful uh, person in our office and she has uh, some sort of doodle. I don't remember what kind, but it, I'm, I'm sure it's fluffy and I couldn't tell what it would be anyway, but she does great stuff. She's um, part of a therapy dog group, which we also have here at Merlin's Kids, but she does in a local hospital that's important to her where she and her family have, you know, have gone for years to this particular hospital. And it's great because the people who are hospitalized really need to have that fun to make their day. And sometimes you'll have a dog that you wanted to have as a service dog and it turns into a therapy dog or vice versa. Um, that's what's so great about dogs. They're so wonderful and they're so able to give us everything that we really need. And sometimes I get very frustrated and I get snarky and I like being snarky, but I get snarky because I see the repercussions of poor breeding, of backyard breeders, um, of people who are, you know, just puppy mills, for lack of a better way to say. And, and I'll leave you with this sad story um, to ruin your Friday night after I got you all pumped up and happy about my awesome puppies. Um, I had a, a client years ago. She had two goldens. One was eight years old and one was, I believe, four. They were um, from a puppy mill, and uh, this place had 50 or 60 females and two or three males, and they bred these doodle things. And this 
female had given birth to, ready for this, she was eight years old, she had given birth to, their records showed, how many, how many, how many litters do you think an eight-year-old golden could have? Five? Like six? That's crazy. That's way too much. Fourteen litters. This golden retriever female was stuck in a breeding facility being bred to a toy poodle artificially. I would inseminate them with this toy poodle with terrible temperament. And this dog cranked out 14 litters of 8 to 10 each. So do the math on that. You're talking about roughly, what, 140, 150 dogs, puppies, that this female produced at four to $5,000 a piece? And, we, and you wonder why I get mad when people buy these freaking doodle things and these designer disasters? That's why, because that eight-year-old Golden, she, I, I, she came, when I came in, I couldn't even find her. I was the first one who'd ever petted her besides the owner who could barely pet her. Because these people, a lot of these people, I'm not saying everyone, but a lot of these places, when you buy that dog, your dog might have come from a fearful, and God knows it might have been this dog, a fearful eight-year-old golden who the only reason they, these people dumped it on the street was because it couldn't have any more babies and get pregnant. That is sick. And that's why I get pissed off. And I think I have every right to be, and I think you all should be furious that people are allowed to breed 14 litters on an eight-year-old dog. 14 litters. That's disgusting and despicable. So if now you know, you're better off looking for a rescue or a shelter dog. Or if you want a doodle, go to a doodle rescue. You know how many doodles there are out there? Oh, my God, there's gazillions of them. So if you want to get one, go to a rescue. Go to a shelter. But don't go into this thinking, well, if it doesn't work out, I'll get rid of the dog. It's like having a special child. And your child is born different. Guess what? It's your child. And you owe it to that child. And I think we owe it to these dogs. We owe it to them. Not to us, but we owe it to them. To do the right thing and to do the best thing for them. So that we can steward them. We can watch them. We can make sure that they're okay. And make sure that no matter what happens, that we take care of them. We love them. And we don't have a female, a fearful, frightened, terrified female having fearful, frightened, terrified puppies, 14 litters of them. Well, my tirade and my rant is over for the day. I love my little puppies. They're nursing right now from my beautiful Azari. And I wish everybody a fantastic, wonderful weekend. God bless you and your dogs. Take care and be good to your animals. So long.